0: Dennis Kinlaw served as an evangelist, pastor, educator, and administrator from 1944 to 2017. Passionate about sharing biblical truth, Dr. Kinlaw became a significant voice for holiness in the 20th century. We hope you enjoy this message from Dr. Kinlaw. Okay, let me read for you uh, from the psalm. Uh, Don't reach for your Bibles. Just listen and listen with your full attention. Listen to the language and hear. The Lord reigns. He is robed in majesty. The Lord is robed in majesty and is armed with strength. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. Your throne was established long ago. You are from all eternity. The seas have lifted up, O Lord. The seas have lifted up their voice. The seas have lifted up their pounding waves. Mightier than the thunder of the great waters, mightier than the breakers of the sea, the Lord on high is mighty. Your statutes stand firm, Holiness adorns your house for endless days, O Lord. That's a magnificent expression of worship. Written what? At least 2,500 years ago and maybe 3,000. It doesn't say that it was by David. Now, listen to this one. Come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord our maker, for he is God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. The Lord reigns. Let the earth be glad. The earth ought to be glad that the Lord reigns. Let the distant shores rejoice. Clouds and thick darkness surround him. Righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. Fire goes before him and continues his foes on every side. His lightning lights up the world. The earth sees and trembles. The mountains melt like wax before the Lord, before the Lord of all the earth. The heavens proclaim his righteousness, and all the people see his glory. All who worship images are put to shame. Those who boast in idols, worship him, all you gods. Zion hears and rejoices, and the villages of Judah are glad because of your judgments, O Lord. For you, O Lord, are the most high over all the earth. You are exalted far above all gods. Let those who love the Lord hate evil, for he guards the lives of his faithful ones and delivers from the hand of the wicked. Light is shed upon the righteous and joy on the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, you who are righteous, and praise his holy name. Now, I wanted to read that for you simply from the standpoint of the fact it was written. In, it is this is, These are from the Psalms in the 90s. You are probably familiar with them. But what is being said is that he is the great God. He is the only God, and he is the Lord of all nature, and he is the Lord. We'll find later as we get to it, he is the Lord of all history. He is without rival or competitor. He reigns. He is sovereign. Now that's the God that we're speaking about and the God who reveals himself in Jesus Christ. Now the interesting thing is that when Jesus talks to his father in the 17th chapter of John in this high priestly prayer, you will remember that he lifts his voice to his father and asks him, Father, the time has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. And then he defines what eternal life is. And I think it is uh, 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 one of the most significant verses in the Bible and one of the most significant windows on what it is that God wants in my life. And this is life eternal, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. So that, uh, what is salvation? It is to know God the Father, and it is to know God the Son. Now, it's very significant that he doesn't say know about him. Now, knowing about him is very important. But he takes that extra step. And says, if you want to be saved, salvation lies in knowing God the Father and Jesus Christ his Son. Now what you've got is the biblical understanding of knowing. And the biblical understanding is not the scientific definition of knowing. It is an interpersonal knowing. And you see, science, the scientist, the one thing he wants is objectivity in which he just separates himself from what he's observing, and uh, he's like a fly on the wall, he just tells you what happens out there, and he's not a part of it in any way. Now, there are a lot of us that come at salvation that way, if you get this formula worked out, and do these things, and you know this, and when we study God, we do God that way. Let me tell you about one of the most interesting things in the in the interpretation of scripture, I think, in the history of Christendom. And I never knew about this until the last uh, 15 months, maybe. You know, one of the most significant verses in the Bible is in Exodus 3, where God comes to Moses and says, I want to set my people free. That is an incredible passage because it's the basis for Calvary. It's to let you know that the God, this God who reigns, is the Redeemer God, who loves people and wants to redeem them. Now, He's called Abraham into existence, and there's an Abrahamic family, and because of that, He's got somebody to work with, and He comes to that family, and one of the members of it, Moses, and says, I want to redeem my own people. And Moses says, You want me to go to Pharaoh? the most powerful man in the world, and tell him to let all of his slaves go? And the Lord said, that's exactly what I want you to do. And he said, you know, when I go to the elders of the Jews and tell them this, you know, that could start all sorts of problems. You know, it did start problems. You remember how Pharaoh doubled the workload? He said, when I go to the elders of Israel, the elders are going to say, who sent you? What's his name? And so the Lord says to Moses, well, I am that I am. Tell them the I am sent you. Now, uh, that's very interesting, isn't it? That's an interesting name for God. I am. Now, uh, you'll notice that it's first person. And it is present. He says, I am. Now, uh, I'm not as good a Hebrews. I'm not the Hebrew scholar that... You know, in the Hebrew, what it says is, Echye, Asher, Echyeh. I am, Echyeh. That, Asher, I am, Echyeh. I wonder if the the Asher that's translated that or who is really not a quotation mark. And what he's saying to Moses is, They want to know who I am? I'm I am. Because in the next line, he says, Tell them the I am sent you. He doesn't say it. Tell them the I am that I am. But he says, tell them the I am sent you. Now, Moses went and told Pharaoh that. Now, when that Hebrew was translated into Greek, because most of the Jews in the days of Jesus and Paul read Greek, and they were scattered over the Mediterranean, and many of them didn't read Hebrew, so they translated the Old Testament into Greek, in what we call the Septuagint. When they translated that passage, they translated where it says "Ehyeh, I am that I am" in Hebrew. They translated into Greek "Ego eimi, I am," and then they, instead of "that I am," says they translated. I am he who is. Now, that was done in Greek with a present participle, haon. Ego haon. I am the one who is. Now, notice something. He's saying, and then when it says, tell them the I am sent you, it says, tell them the haon sent you, the one who is. Now, it's interesting, when God for us goes from the I am to he who is, you notice we now have him in the third person. And you know the only way you talk about a third person is when he isn't present. Do you know what most systematic theology has done in Christian history? He's put God in the third person. He's an object instead of a person with whom you are in. Inexorable, continual, unbreakable relationship. You may not know you're in unbreakable relationship with him, but you are in continuous, unbroken, unbreakable relationship with him. There's no way you can get away from God. But we put him in the third person. And we make a sort of an it out of him. That's why you never hear of anybody getting saved in a systematic theology class. What always fascinated me is that nobody ever gets called to the mission field in a seminary course on Acts because we're dealing with everything, you know, objectively in the third person. Now, Jesus says that kind of knowledge won't help you, won't save you. You've got to get it where it is personal knowledge. You know him and he knows you. And it's not knowing about, it is knowing Person, intimate knowledge. That's the reason that in the Old Testament, the word yadah, which means to know. You know, the sun comes up every morning. That same word is used for sexual relations with your wife. So the most intimate of all interpersonal relationships is covered by that word know. It's interesting Talk better about this than I, but the word used in in John 17 is not oida, from which we get idea, it's gnosko. And I think it's one effort in the Greek to say, wait a minute, we're dealing with a personal thing. And this is life eternal, that they might know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Now, uh, somewhere or other, all of our teaching, all of our preaching ought to be in such a way. That we move from the objective stuff into the subject, intersubjective, per, inter, the I thou relationship where, where we are knowing Him and knowing Him personally and intimately. Now, now, what is He like? It's important that I know what He's like if I'm to know Him. And what do we learn? Now, there are two major developments in the scripture, I think, to let us know what God is like, and to know about him so that we can come to know him. Now the first of these is in Moses, and in the Pentateuch, and in uh, Sinai. When God, he called Abraham, now Abraham has a family, God called Moses, and they come to Sinai, and there God discloses himself to Israel. You know, the scholars raise the question as to whether Abraham was really a monotheist or not. Because you can't prove it. Now, he believed in his God. He believed in the one God who is. But you don't know for sure what he believed about anything else. He, he, he certainly staked his life on the one he knew. Uh, there are a lot of us who have better religion than our heads sometimes because our instincts are following the Spirit. We're moving with the Spirit, and then we find, oh. This is better than I thought it was. Well, that's sort of the way it is with Abraham. You get to Moses and you say, wait a minute, I picked the right guy because he's the only one. <laughs> and in, in Moses, it is crystal clear, monotheism, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. There is no other. And you're to love him with all your mind, heart, mind, soul, and strength. In that teaching, you get a God who transcends nature. You notice how those Psalms speak about the oceans? And the waves and the, the hills and the mountains, they're all His and He's sovereign over them all. He transcends them all. They're all in His hands. They're, as it were, playthings in His hands. He's sovereign. He's transcendent. Now He is, there's an exclusivity here because He's the only one. And so you spend time on any other God and you're wasting it because He's a nothing, the Old Testament says. But this God who came to Moses, who called Abraham, He is. He's the one who is. And he's the only one, the only God who is. There are other things that are, but the other things that are, are are because he is. And so uh, there's an exclusivity and a transcendence about him. Now, he transcends the earth enough that there's nothing in the earth that you can use to make a symbol for it. And so the second commandment, first commandment, you're to have no other God before him, me. And the second commandment, you're not to make any graven image. There is nothing in the world, there's nothing in the created order that is adequate to be a symbol for him except yourself. And we're made in his image. And if you acknowledge that we're made in his image and are a reflection of him, you surely aren't going to worship you or me. So he says, no idol. Now, as we said, in his transcendence, he is the first and the last he's in total control without rival or competitor. And he likes us. You know, I've begun to use the word like instead of love because love has lost all its meaning. <laughs> I was talking with the doctor. His wife came from a Roman Catholic background interesting couple, and he uh, told me about his wife, his wife's mother, his mother-in-law was dying with liver cancer, and so his wife went to spend a week with his, her mother, and they're lying in bed, she's from a Roman Catholic, the mother's from a Roman Catholic background, and uh, the doctor said, we believe she's come to personal faith in Christ. But much of the old Catholic ways of thinking, some of them are still there. So as they lie there in bed, this woman desperately sick, She looks over at her daughter and says, Honey, do you think God could ever forgive me for not going to Mass? She can't go anywhere. But she's saying, Do you think God could ever forgive me for not going to Mass? And her daughter looked at her and said, Mother, do you know what you have to learn? There's not a thing in the world that you can do to make God love you more. Because he is love. And he relates to you with that love, which is what he is. And she said, Mother, you've got to learn that God And sick woman got enough energy to throw her hands up and said, Oh, no, God could never like me. He liked you. That's why he picked out Abraham. (laughs) That's why he picked out Israel. That's why he called Moses. That's why he gave the prophets. That's why he gave Jesus. That's why he gave Paul and the rest of these guys. So you and I can know the attitude of God toward us. This sovereign who reigns over everything. He's got a heart for us. When I started falling in love with Elsie, I was very shy. She was a Yankee out of the Southern. She had social status I didn't have. And I thought, Could it ever be that she'd take any interest in me? And you know, I can remember, I found out which room she lived in. It was on the north side of Gladys Crawford, 212. I'd take a walk hiking down to the cemetery just so I could walk back. And walk back and look up at that window and yearn. That's about as close as I ever got to being like God. Because that's what he does. This sovereign who's over everything—he likes he, he yearns for us because who is he? He's love? He loves his world, the whole world, and wants to redeem it. And that's what you get in the in the biblical account. All these stories of God walking with with uh, Adam and Eve in the garden, walking with uh, Enoch, and walking with Noah and Noah and saying. Uh, to Abraham, walk before me, walk with me, walk. You know, the Hebrew says, walk to my face. It says, listen, hey, walk to my face. Now, uh, he wants face-to-face relationship with us. Uh, there's a lady who writes for Good News magazine, who's a grandmother. And she was in the kitchen, and her little three-year-old granddaughter was there playing around, and she was too busy to pay any much attention to her, and The little girl started yanking on her skirt. Finally, she looked down at the little girl. and The little girl looked up and said, Grandmother, fix your face on me. That's a good image of what Genesis 17 is saying. God is saying to Abraham, fix your face on me. I want that kind of face-to-face relationship with you. And who is he? He is the sovereign Lord of all the universe. You get that picture of the one God who reigns. And that's Old Testament. Now, there's some things in the Old Testament that let you know there may be more than that there. But they're never explicit. But then Jesus is born. And uh, they come to worship. And he begins to talk about his Father, about God, and calls him his Father. And as he calls him his Father, they're aware he has a different relationship to God than theirs. And it's so intimate that the Jewish temple leadership begins to say he thinks he's equal with God. And before they get through, they say he thinks he's divine. And so they say he has to be killed. Now, uh, you uh, begin then with that problem. How do you reconcile? He's one. What do you do with Jesus? Something inside you says, I need to bow. Paul says every knee will bow to him. You've only bowed to the divine. And so we need to bow before him. Now, how do you explain this? The early theologians in the early church said, we don't understand. In the mystery of God's greatness, he transcends all our categories. There's one being up there. There are three persons in that being. There is the Father, and there is the Son, and there is the Holy Spirit. And you find that, you remember Jesus said, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. So every person baptized in the early Christian church was baptized in the name of all three of these. At the same time, they were saying there's only one God. You know, Fascinates me that it took the church 300 years to find language to describe it. And you know, I think one of the greatest problems we have is finding language to describe what we're talking about. It doesn't come ready-made. There's this on using the heads we've got. The early church did it. The most significant intellectual battle in the history of man was deciding how to relate Jesus to Yahweh in the Old Testament and the doctrine of the Trinity. And so uh, they use they use the brains God gave them and ask how do we explain this? And so Paul said, gave the you know the benediction we use, grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, communion to the Holy Spirit be with you all. This is uh, this is the way we we put the divine sanction on our fellowship. So He's three in all of that one. Now. It's interesting, when you get the doctrine of the Trinity, you get a different understanding of the nature of God. But you also get a different understanding of his relationship to us and the relationship he wants us to have with him. Now, there are a lot of metaphors in the scripture. He's called a shepherd. He's called a redeemer. There are others. They're things that he does primarily. But there are three major metaphors in the Scripture to describe God and His relationship to us and our relationship to Him, and those three relationships uh, are based that we would not think of them if it were not for the Trinity. Now, what is it that you have in the about God and what He's like in His inner being? You see. Uh, what Jesus did for us was gave us an inside look into the nature of God. Every other picture you ever get is from the outside. The early church fathers in the first three centuries developed two phrases, odd intra and odd extra. One is from the outside and one is from the inside. And they said, What did Jesus do? Jesus came along and told us what God's like on his inside. If you want to know what he's like on the outside, you read the Old Testament. If you want to know what he's like on the inside, you come to Jesus. Now, here's here's a magnificent passage. It's pretty heavy stuff, but listen. These three persons in the Godhead, each of these three in which the one love of God subsists is conceivable only in relation to the other two. You can't think of one without thinking of the other two you know uh, a father what does that mean it means he's got a child a son what does it mean it means he's got a father you can't think of a son without thinking of a father you can't think of a father without thinking of a child and it was the spirit that conceived jesus in the womb and so it and the one who anointed him made his days possible was the power in his life so it is the spirit that makes him known to us. And when we know him, we know what God's like on the inside. Now, the Father, as pure, self-giving love, cannot exist without the Son, who receives. It's interesting when God receives, isn't it? He gives, and he receives in his inner life, from one to the other. But since the Son does not receive something, but everything... He exists only in and through the giving and the receiving. His existence is in the other person. On the other hand, he would not have truly received the self-giving of the Father were he to keep it for himself and not give it back because what he was given was self-giving life, self-giving love. He exists, therefore, insofar as he receives himself Holy from the Father and gives Himself wholly back an existence that is wholly owed to another. The Son owes His existence to the Father, and the Father gives that existence to the Son. The Son is therefore pure gratitude, eternal Eucharist. Isn't that interesting? pure, obedient response to the word and will of the Father. But this reciprocal love also presses beyond itself. It is pure giving only if it empties itself of and gives away even this two in oneness and in pure gratuitousness incorporates a third in whom love exists as pure receiving. A third who therefore exists only insofar as he receives his being from the mutual love between the Father and the Son. The three persons of the Trinity are thus pure relationality. They are relations in which the one nature of God exists in three distinct and non-interchangeable ways. They are subsistent relations. Now, that's a brilliant systematic theologian and philosopher, right? But what, what do you get? You get three people, persons who can't live without the other. Father can't live without the son, so he produces him. (laughs) Now that drove the Greek philosophers crazy. Because God was supposed to be above feeling and certainly above all need. But here's a father who can't live without giving life to his son. And a father and a son who can't live without giving life to a third. And each one gives his life back to the other. So it is self-sacrificing love. Not a love that draws this way, but a love that goes that way. Now it's interesting. Paul, when he talks about the mind of Christ, says, let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, thought it not a thing to be grasped, that fair bill for her pocket. A thing to be grasped, to be equal with God. But emptied himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Now, I think the key word in there for me is grasp. And you know what I think he's got in mind? Do you know who this Jesus is? Paul says he's the last Adam. And what Paul has in mind is the first Adam. And how different the last Adam is from the first Adam. God's starting all over again. But this Adam's different from that Adam because what was the first Adam? He saw the fruit on the tree, knew it would please his wife. The devil said to him, if you just grab it, you'll be like God. The last Adam came along and he was God. And he emptied himself of that. He didn't grasp. He poured it out for you and for me. So you see, one comes this way and the other goes that way. The supreme definition of sin, biblically, for me now is in Isaiah 53. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. you know that's the reason the last, for the reason for the last of the Ten Commandments? Thou shalt not covet. Paul says, "Covetousness is idolatry because you put something you want for you, and that puts you out of touch with the One who wants everything for you, and has caused you to be like Him." Now, that's holy love. Now, that picture you do not get anywhere except in the Trinity, in Christ. Christ leads us to it. Now, that brings us to uh, the three metaphors that I wanted to talk about. And it's interesting how Scripture is interlaced with these. You will find that sometimes Paul will use one, or the Bible will use one. But most of the time you'll find them all mixed together. At least two, and oftentimes three. And what are? One of them is the family metaphor. That the first thing you say about God is Father. And the last thing you say about God is Father. But when you say Father, you've also got to say Son. Because Father is meaningless without a child. But the Father is first. And the Son renders up his kingdom to the Father from whence it came. So it's a family. Now it's interesting how that develops in the Bible. You know, the first trace I can find of it is in that Exodus 3 and 4. When God says to Moses, Go to Pharaoh and let me tell you what to tell him. You tell him to let my son, my firstborn, go. And so you get, Israel is described as the son, the firstborn of God. What is Israel? It's the people of God. And God looks upon the people of God as his son, as his child. You read in Deuteronomy 32, that prayer of Moses, and he talks about God as father. Then you come to David, and it's not Israel that is the father. God says in 2 Samuel 7, He says to David, I will be a father to you and you will be a son to me. So you've got an individual who's the son of God. You uh, get that further expressed in terms of all of Israel in many ways in the Old Testament. But if you'll read Jeremiah, Jeremiah will talk about God as the father of Israel and Israel as the disobedient child. Now, when you come to the New Testament, you begin to find that it's extended beyond David's kingly royal line. It is extended to every person who is redeemed. And that's that's what you get with the new birth. God says, and Jesus says to Nicodemus, ye must be born again. And you, if you're born again, you're born into the family of God and you can call him father. Now, uh, you know, John was very impressed by this, because when you get to First John, he talks about what manner of love is the Father bestowed upon us that we should be called the children of God. We are his children. We have a relationship like the second person of the Trinity. We're not divine, but we have a relationship to the first person of the Trinity like the Son does. We are his brothers and his sisters in the family with him. You come to chapter 8 of Romans, and he says that the Spirit of God bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And our hearts cry out, yes, we can pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father, Abba, Father. You come to Revelation, and the last picture is of God on the throne and Christ standing in the throne and the married supper of the Lamb. The bride is there, and God says about the bride, interesting mixture of genders, he says, she will be my son. Uh, What he's saying is, we, he is looking for uh, for his family to be extended, and he would like for his family to be as extensive as the whole earth. Now. So you get that family metaphor. You get the sovereign metaphor, which I call a legal, political metaphor. You don't get it, really, in the scripture until you get to Exodus. You don't get it until you get a nation. You cannot have a nation without without order. You cannot have a nation without a judicial system. And so when you get Exodus, the people, you get a law and you get the legal procedures as to how a body of people can live together in a civilized way. And so there you get the political thing. Now, he's sovereign. You see, in our world, we separate the judicial, the legal, and the uh administrative the executive branches of the government we separate now in the ancient world there was no separation the king was both king and judge sovereign and judge and so the old testament worked on that order when it comes to the sovereignty of god and the judge he is the sovereign judge now he's the lord of nature as we said he's the lord of history because he takes on the Pharaoh, the most powerful man in the world. And he takes on the most powerful army in the world. He's the Lord of history as well as of nature. And, uh, and then you get the final picture when you come to the book of Revelation. And it's the great white throne and the judgment. Every person comes before him. And we're judged for what we've done in the flesh. The sovereign does his rule. Judging. He's the judge. So you get the legal and that's where we get this thing of justification very biblical very crucial but you get a third metaphor which i i think we have in protestantism really missed and that's the nuptial metaphor you know i think i might to make a case that there is as much reference in the bible and as much biblical data on the nuptial metaphor as there is on the legal human history doesn't begin with a court sentence and human history doesn't end with a court sentence the final judgment is a prelude to the end and the beginning is a wedding and the end is the marriage supper of the Lamb you will remember that Jesus first miracle was at a wedding Now, a question in my mind as to why the first of the seven signs of John is at a wedding. Because when they asked Jesus why his disciples didn't fast, well, he said this is a wedding announcement party. And the friends of the bridegroom don't fast at a wedding announcement party. And they asked John the Baptist about this, and he said, well, I'm just a friend of the bridegroom. So that John the Baptist and Jesus understood Jesus' ministry in nuptial concepts. Now, isn't it interesting? Everybody you know is a citizen. It'd be very difficult for you to ever locate anybody in the world that didn't have citizenship somewhere. So there's the legal, political metaphor. All of us are caught in one. Is that divine order? Like some of what you were talking about? Bill, this morning, now take the family metaphor. Have you ever met anybody who didn't have a father? You'll never meet anybody who doesn't have a father and a mother. Isn't it interesting that these metaphors are written into our very existence, our daily life, and the nuptial metaphor? I've never met anybody who wasn't male or female. It, to me, is fascinating the way the creation reflects the nature of God. Now, why does he do that? Why did he put it together this way? Because I've decided God is the world's greatest third-grade student. If we don't catch it, it's because we're stupid. And, you know, that's what's wrong with the whole business of homosexuality we pitched it on a moral basis rather than on natural order basis. And we lose the battle on the moral order because I have my morality and you've got yours. Why do you judge me? But everybody you've ever met is either male or female. And I know what it means to be a male. You're not complete. You're not all there. That's what it means to be a female. You're not all there. You're made for somebody else, and you're made for somebody different from you. And that's the reason that Genesis says, in the beginning, he created man in his own image, male and female created he them. And the Father doesn't find fulfillment except in the Son and in the Spirit. And the Son doesn't find fulfillment except in the Father and in the Spirit. And the Spirit doesn't find fulfillment except in the Father and the son. And you and I have a partial analogy in human sexuality, and God says it's there so you'll understand me. And that's the reason the devil wants to corrupt it, Because of the signs and the witnesses, he wants to obliterate so that we will not know how we are to relate to the living God. Now, it's interesting. The relationship of of a child to a parent is one thing. You uh, relate to your parents uh, with respect. Ten Commandments says, honor your father and mother. You know, I I don't know how old I was. I must have been teaching in seminary, Bill, before I realized it didn't say obey your father and mother. Did you know God never told you to obey your father and mother? He said to honor. And if you're 10 years old, you honor them by obeying. (laughs) And if you're 20 years old, you honor them by separating. (laughs) And you honor them by remembering affectionately what they taught you. (laughs) And in internalizing what they gave you. I got a letter from a grandson the other day. He's in Israel. He said, you know, God's speaking to me. I believe he wants me to have a relationship with Jesus, independent of my relationship with my family. (laughs) I read that and said, three cheers. (laughs) He doesn't need to be an echo of his grandfather. And he doesn't need to be an echo of his father and his mother. He needs to be what God wants him to be. And a right father wants him to be that and doesn't try to do this way. Now, that's the kind of relationship, see, God wants me to grow into where I can be a part of that fellowship. Now, but what does he give me? A son has an identification. He has the same name as his father. And the daughter carries that name until she gets another. There's an identification. And uh, you know you belong to him, and you're tagged by him. And a Christian ought to be tagged by God. That's what baptism and the other things are. But uh, what is the relationship ultimately? Do you know it is a life-giving relationship? A parent gives life to his child. And the Eternal Father gives life to us. Now, what is the life that he gives us? It's his life. And do you know what a half-person is? A person who's not filled with the Holy Ghost. We were made to find our completeness in him when he gives his life to us. And you know, when his life comes in, it's amazing how different you are. Let me tell you a story. I have a daughter who does conferences related she was invited by an Asbury seminary couple young couple in the east who uh, wanted to have something for their ladies and so the wife contacted our daughter and asked if she come. she said yes and so they began communicating the preacher's wife one day called her said you know we're having some trouble and that said what this She said, uh, our ladies don't like the idea of this conference, Ladies' conference. So they've decided to boycott it. And she said, what complicates things is, is, I've told other pastors around whose wives have invited their people and we've got people planning to come in from other churches and our own ladies want to boycott it. And she said, what should we do? And Beth said, "You know better than I. You're there." And she said, "Well, we may not be able to pay you for coming because the lady who's leading the boycott is the church treasurer." And Beth said, "Well, do you think you could pay my airfare? I don't know, but we'll try." So uh, Beth said to me, "Should I go?" I said, "Yeah, <laughs> go." Because she went. The Lord came and blessed. About a week or two after that, she got a phone call from the lady from the white pastor's wife. She said, you'll be interested in the story. My husband was standing in the church talking to two of our laymen. One of the laypersons was a man with a Roman Catholic background who just recently came to know Christ. And while they're standing and talking, the church treasurer comes in. And she marches straight up to the pastor, this young pastor, looks him in the face and excoriates him for all she's worth. Poor about her wrath on him. These two men are standing like this. And uh, the pastor said, you know, my first impulse is to reply in kind. I knew how to do that. I'd done that before. (laughs) <laughs> but he said suddenly I sensed something it was as if suddenly I found myself enveloped in Jesus in Jesus himself and this incredible love rose up in me for this poor woman and he said I found myself saying to her you know you're angry, and you've hurt me. Now it's not the time for either one of us to talk. You need to get over your anger, and I need to get over my hurt. And then we need to talk. We have to talk. Oh, she said, I'm not angry. And he said, yes, you are very angry, and I'm hurt. And you need to get over your anger, and I need to get over my hurt. And then we need to sit down. Oh, she said, I didn't mean any of it. He looked at her and said, Yes, you meant every word of it. <laughs> You're angry and I'm hurt. Now let's both get over it, and then we have to talk. She turned. She was gone. Beck Roman Catholic is standing there wide eyed. He looked at the preacher and said, Preacher. How'd you do that? <laughs> he said, "If it'd been me, I'd have mopped her up. I'm up the aisle with her." He said, "You know, you've been talking about holding it. Is this what that is?" <laughs> now, I love that story because of this. He said, "You know, I have ready to tell her off, and sudden. I felt myself encompassed in Jesus Christ, and His love flowed through. That's the life of God. That's not your life and mine. That's God's life." And the Father wants to give us His life because that's the way He reacts. So the familial one on categories of new birth, regeneration. These are family categories, family relationships. Now you you have the legal political one. You see it running through Scripture with its emphasis on obedience to the law, and you've broken it, and there's a provision made so that you won't have to take the penalty for it. But you know, that's sinner That's not a good substitute for having his life in it. Now, I want the justification. <laughs> I need it. But I also want the life in me. And you see, that's what Jesus is talking about in 17 of John when he says, and this is life eternal to know. How do you know? You know his life within you. You know him within you. Now what about the nuptial? If the key to the familial one is new life, major emphasis in the legal one is justification, forgiveness, so you can get through the judgment, stand clear, you don't have to pay the penalty for your sin. The nuptial one, what is it? That's the demanding one, isn't it? Because, you see, that's where what he's after, Christ, is an exclusive relationship with you in which he's first in your life. He is the center of your existence. And a relationship that is total. Now, you get a preview to that in the Old Testament with his emphasis on loving God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. It's a totality of that. It. And it's uh, unconditional. It's forever. The analogy of the human level is until death us to parts. And you see, in this one, you're never going to die. <laughs> so it shouldn't end. <laughs> I love the story of John Bracker when he was 100. He was invited to preach at the annual conference for the 100th anniversary of the Alabama Conference. And so he asked the bishop, how long do you want me to preach? I said, as long as you need to. Well, he said, this younger generation can't take much, so I won't speak over 35 minutes. He preached away, and it was a remarkable time. The reporter was there from the Daily, leading daily of the Capitol and asked if he could have an appointment with Dr. Brasher. So he quizzed this old man. <laughs> Finally, the bishop said to the reporter, I believe Dr. Bracher is weary and you should let him go. Bracher turned to the young the reporter and said, son, do you have any more questions you want to ask? The said, well, there's one I'd like to ask to twist. He said, what's that? He said, Dr. Brasher, you're 100 years old. How long do you expect to live? Brasher threw his head way back and lowered Looked at the guy and said, How long do I expect to live, son? Forever, son, forever. <laughs> the next day the newspaper carried a line. Forever, son, forever. <laughs> we are married to him. My relationship to Elsie will end. That's the parable. My relationship to him, Christ, will never. So it is to be an exclusive relationship without rival or contest. There's only supposed to be one woman in my life and there's only supposed to be one Lord in my life. That's what I believe about entire sanctification. That's the reason it makes sense to me. It is an exclusive relationship in its total. You forsake all. And you know, it's remarkably... You know, Elsie reminds me of Abraham. (laughs) Because I said, will you marry me? And she said, what's the future? I said, I don't know. (laughs) God said to Abraham, will you follow me? And he said, what's the future? But he said, it's going to be good. <laughs> and Abraham left everything to follow Yahweh, and Elsie and El- left everything to follow me. <laughs> and I'll leave everything to follow Jesus. No more complaining than Elsa's done. Isn't it interesting how these things fit right into who we are, where we are, what we are, what we need. You see, the gospel is a fit for us because the one who made us made us for himself. Now, is there a primacy in these? Is there one metaphor that deserves preference over the other? Well, I think I can make a case for an order in these. Because, you see, the familial one is based in the nature of the first person of the Blessed Trinity. And our relationship to him, our relationship to our earthly parents, is like that. So the family is based on the nature of God. The nuptial one is based on the will of God. And it's eternal. So the family one transcends time family was in existence before time, it'll be in existence after time. If I understand vividly, vividly. the picture. The nuptial one is based in our human sexuality, in our bodies, and it's based divine-wise in the eternal purposes of God. You remember uh, in Ephesians, Paul said, he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us to be adopted as his sons, the father's sons through Jesus Christ. And then you get to the fifth chapter, and we find out we're the sons of the father and we're the bride of the son. So you see, the nuptial one transcends that. Now, the judicial one, the legal judicial is part of human history. There's no law in Abraham's day. Because you've got an individual before God. You get the Moses. you've got a people. You've got a legal system. You come to the end of human history and uh, the kingdom is rendered up to the Father by the Son. And we are the bride of Christ. So, you know, I wonder why it is that we've made the legal one the paramount. Because, you know, uh, a relationship of a man to a judge by way of the law is very different from the relationship of a child to a father. And you know, the thing I love about children is you never get rid of them. Have you found that out? You know, I think I have more joy in of my kids today than I did when I was young. Ask Mel about that. <laughs> incredible, the joy you get. I listen to you talk about Becky. <laughs> you get out. So you're going to have that. But what about the intimacy of a man and a woman, male and female, husband and wife? God wants that kind of relationship between me and his son. And what is it? It's a love relationship. It is a joy relationship. You know in the Old Testament, one of the marks of a society without God, if you read carefully, you will find that one of the marks of a society without God is you no longer hear the sound of the bride and the bridegroom. We're moving in that direction, aren't we? That's what the Old Testament says. It's the lowest level a society can reach. Well, what about the bride and the bride? It's amazing to me. The way you in, people instinctively know. You don't have to tell them how to act. A wedding is an occasion of great joy. That's the kind of relationship I'm supposed to have with Christ. And you know, if we understand it, it produces a different kind of worship. You know the old German hymn, Jesus Christ is treasure, source of purest pleasure, truest friend to me. Long my heart had panted, till it well not, well not fainted, thirsty after thee. Thine I am, O spotless lamb, I will suffer not to hide thee, ask for naught beside thee. Now, you know, I wish we could get these metaphors back into our discussion and into our persons' lives. And into our district.